Would you bow with me one more time in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word that has now been read aloud. We know that your word is quick, it is active, it is your very power which has now been spoken, which is the power to convict and encourage, to rebuke and to strengthen. We pray that your spirit would accompany now the reading of your word and its preaching, that you would be pleased now to delight in your people, to show us yourself, that we would taste your glory and be humbled unto worship by it. We pray this in your name. Amen. So now we find ourselves uh, once again picking up where we left off last week in Luke's gospel, probably to the most famous of the various parables that are told in all of the gospels uh, would be here the parable, of, the parable of the prodigal son. And there's much to say uh, on this text, but there is one main idea that I would like to put before your eyes, before your minds, and uh, that is what's going to try to organize as we work through all of chapter 15 together tonight. So the main idea is this, that Jesus' mission is to save the lost, and because of that mission, the lost are found. Jesus' mission is to save the lost, and because of his mission, the lost are found. We see here in the text three parables which have been uh, read just now. And you might find it strange because uh, it seems, at, at least at first glance, like two of the parables are really short explanations or short illustrations. And the third is really where the meat of the message goes. And that could be a fair way, I think, to, to read the text. Often you could preach really and, and look at just uh, verses 11 through the end as kind of its own literary unit, its own, its own idea. But I think the understanding of the parable of the prodigal son, as it's often known, is best understood in light of the context in which it's delivered. The, the parables all are really an address from Jesus to respond to the accusation which has been raised for him in verse 2 by the scribes and the Pharisees. So let's look at the immediate context and then uh, try to understand how these parables fit together within it. Verse 1 of chapter 15 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And then verse 2, and we have another group of people, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now this is not new for Luke. He's already told us about Jesus' squabbles with the Pharisees. He's already introduced to us the idea of the Pharisees, the uh, self-righteous uh, religious leaders of the day, having many issues with Jesus. It seems at this point in Luke's gospel, every turn, every interaction, every event is driven by the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And here, once again, we find the Pharisees and the scribes. That would be the, the theologians and then also the, uh, the seminarians, all the, all the best and brightest of the religious scholars of the day, grumbling against Jesus uh, and complaining to him that he receives sinners and eats with them. Now, in Luke chapter 5, Luke has already addressed such a, such a complaint once before. At that point in time, Jesus is, is engaging with them, and, and they complain that he eats with sinners, and they ask for an explanation, and he gives one. And here we have a similar kind of interaction. And this time, though, rather than Jesus uh, using the explanation, uh, I came not to save the righteous, but bring sinners to repentance, 
those who are healthy have no need of physician, but those who are ill have need of physician. Here he's going to give an explanation that terminates with the idea that actually there are none who are righteous. In Luke chapter 5, the idea of the, the interaction leaves us with this question. Does Jesus say the Pharisees are righteous on their own and therefore they don't need him and they should leave him alone for his mission? Or is he insinuating that they really ought to be aware of their own disease and sickness? It's not quite obvious in Luke chapter 5, but in Luke chapter 15 here, particularly with that third parable, we come to understand that there's not one lost son, there's actually two lost sons. The lost son who stayed and the lost son who fled to the far country. But to understand that, uh, we really need to understand the context in which this is spoken. So verse 1 and 2 set that up for us. You have sinners who he's eating with and the Pharisees and the scribes. These are two groups who are going to be addressed in each of the three parables. And the complaint of the scribes is what Jesus is addressing. So first, Jesus is going to address this question, uh, why does Jesus do this mission? Why does Jesus go and receive sinners and eat with them? So he explains it in the first two ways uh, by telling us that he is intentional in his search for the lost. We see this in uh, the first two parables specifically, where we see first of a, of a man who is a shepherd and who has sheep in his fold. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he have lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And I want to skip over to verse 8, where we have the same question raised, different scenario. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she will call together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found a coin that I have lost. The first two parables, the illustration is clear. It's, it's parallel, if you like. The intentional pursuit of the one who used to have a sheep or used to have a coin to find the lost sheep or the lost coin. The emphasis is then on Jesus' intent in his mission to go out and seek those who are lost. Uh, the intentionality of Christ to save sinners is part of what brings about all these issues between him and the Pharisees. They think sinners aren't worth saving. And Jesus is essentially saying his mission is actually to do that very thing, to rescue sinners unto himself. So we see that Jesus' search for the lost is an intentional kind of search. But there's a little bit more going on than just that primary idea that his search for the lost is intentional. Because in the first parable, he actually uses imagery that is, not, uh, is often lost on us, but is not lost on the Pharisees. For example, the idea of a shepherd guarding sheep and protecting sheep, that's actually imagery that comes right out of the prophet Ezekiel where the primary contention of God is with the religious leaders who have failed to be shepherds to the people of God. I'd like to turn to Ezekiel chapter 34 and look at that text. Well, you'll notice that the illustration that Jesus uses is a little on the nose to a prophecy of God way back in the day through Ezekiel. So this is uh, Ezekiel chapter 34. And you find in Ezekiel, as the whole book is about God's uh, saving of his people or his, his love for his people 
in spite of their wickedness and unfaithfulness. But in Ezekiel 34, we come to God uh, placing blame on certain groups in Israel which are more responsible for the sin which is abounding in Israel than others. I'm going to start in verse 2 of chapter 34 of Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves? Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, and you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, and the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains, and on every high hill, my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search and seek for them. The Pharisees and the scribes are the appointed shepherds of Israel. They are to guard the doctrine. They are to guard the spiritual vitality of the nation. They are to do what has been appointed to them to do, which is to protect the people of God from anything in the world which might afflict his people. They can't do so perfectly, but this is their task. This is what they have been called to do. And yet in Ezekiel, they are indicted for the fact that they don't seek the lost. They don't pursue those who have strayed. Uh, they actually consume the flock which they are charged with guarding and profit by its exploitation. So what God does is he condemns the shepherds for this activity which he has charged them with. And then he says in verse 11 of chapter 34 of Ezekiel, Behold, I, I myself will search for the sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd who seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the days of the clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on the rich pasture they will feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. In verse 16, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and fat and the, and, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So Jesus is not pulling his illustration of a shepherd pursuing lost sheep out of thin air. He's actually pulling it out of a direct condemnation of the religious leaders to whom he is currently speaking. Remember, they're the ones grumbling and complaining that Jesus is pursuing sinners and tax collectors. And his contention is, have you not read Ezekiel? Where you are condemned, your fathers are condemned for this very same practice where you abandon Israel, you exploit Israel, and you do not labor over the people God has assigned you. Don't worry, there's a good shepherd who will pursue the lost sheep, who will bring them back home, and who will rejoice over their finding and being brought back into the fold. This is the first illustration, the first parable that Jesus gives. It's a direct assault against those who have just come at him with an accusation. It also should not be lost on us 
that the term that Luke uses in verse 2 to describe the Pharisees and the scribes as grumbling should evoke imagery from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where the people of God, when they're being wandered, brought about in the wilderness, are described as a grumbling, hard-hearted people. So Luke is bringing about imagery, the language grumbling, to frame for us who these Pharisees are like. They're not the faithful Israelites. They're the grumbling ones in the wilderness. This is who they are. They, he kind of frames the, the, the text for us by saying they're the grumbling ones. They don't think they're in need of God. They don't understand why God's so obsessed with bringing the lost to himself. And Jesus frames their expectation by this parable straight out of Ezekiel. And what's, what's noteworthy then is not just that Jesus' search for the lost is intentional, that he is the one who's set his heart and affections on bringing the lost sheep to himself, uh, but also you'll see in the first two parables the joyous celebration when the lost are found. You see it with the, in verse 6 with the shepherd. And when he comes home, this is after he's obtained the sheep, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus rejoices over the lost one who comes back and immediately uses that to condemn the righteous, the self-righteous, who seemingly stand there purporting that they have no need for repentance. Now, we ought not press that too far. The third parable will clarify that Jesus actually doesn't think that there are people who have no need of repentance. He's simply postulating two groups, one who is lost, admittedly so, and can be found, and another group that feels as though they are not lost. With the woman, you have the same kind of idea. She pursues the coin which she has lost and similarly rejoices over it. In verse, eight, or sorry, in verse 9, when she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God's explanation through the lips of Jesus here are, is, is poignant. It, it, it tells us a lot about what the parables mean. The coin is a stand-in for those who God is intentionally seeking in the image of the woman. The lost sheep is a stand-in for the tax collectors and sinners who Jesus is pursuing. His point is that he is an intentional pursuer of those who others don't think are worth pursuing, and he will get those whom he pursues. In both the first and second parable, the emphasis is on the one seeking that which is lost and their success in getting it back. And yet that is accompanied with rejoicing and feasting and much celebration. And then comes the third parable, the longest of, of the three, which is more like a story or, or an allegory of sorts because it has all these characters and this dynamic plot. And it's going to zoom in to the message we've just heard from the first two parables and blow that message up and clarify what about these two groups, the 99 and the, the one, or the 10 coins and the, or sorry, the nine coins and the one that was lost. Are we really to believe that what Jesus is saying is the Pharisees and the scribes have no need for redemption and he's going to go seek those who do have need for redemption? Or is he about to clarify for us what he means when he says the righteous have no need for repentance? Verse 11, there's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had 
and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The two sons are various people, various lost individuals that can be found within the nation of Israel. You have the lost who are going to take all that God has given them, all the inheritance that they've been granted, and they're going to abandon God. They're going to pursue whatever else they can get. They're going to take the wealth that God has given them and they're going to squander it wherever they can go. So you have the younger son who himself has no right to an abundance of the inheritance. And he's going to take the inheritance that his father has so diligently stored for him and he's going to squander it in all kinds of reckless ways. And we know that that doesn't lead to success because we know from Israel's story that when they go pursue false gods and other nations and whatever else is outside of God's good inheritance, that they find themselves destitute and broken and impoverished. So it happens with the younger son. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. That is a note of hope in the text, not a note of condemnation. Because as soon as the young son realizes he's in need, is actually where the story takes a turn for him. Because in verse 15, his need drives him first to a destitute place. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Unclean of unclean for a Jewish son. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. This This foreign land, which the son went to go squander his wealth in, is harsh, it is brutal, It is empty, and it is exploiting his poverty, and it has turned him into this destitute state. But there's a hope because he is aware of how destitute he is. And verse 17 says, when he came to himself, and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? The pursuit of the father in this third parable is much less obvious in the first two, but it is... Nevertheless, a pursuit. He testified to his goodness and his reception of his son by essentially blessing anyone and everyone else who would receive his blessing. And it makes the son long for the good old days where he was fed and clothed in the care of his father, provided for. He remembers back to the glory and the bliss before he squandered all his wealth, before he left for the far country. And he looks back and he longs to be restored to that again. And this image burns a message of hope in his brain that causes him to actually conclude it would be better to go back to his father as a servant. Even if he doesn't get restored to sonship status, it would be better for him to go and be a servant to his father than it would be to stay in this foreign land as a servant and a slave to these cruel masters. And he will say these words, verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now this is becoming clear that this is the posture of the sinners and the tax collectors when they come to Jesus. They don't insist upon their own righteousness. They insist upon their own destitution, their own brokenness, their own need for redemption. And they come to Jesus and they say things like, we just want a little sliver of your grace. We don't need to be sons. We don't need to be heirs. We'll take whatever we can get from you. Just to be found in you, found in your fold, found protected by you. And this is the position of the younger son. He's so desperate, he concludes it's even better to be a servant with my father than to be uh, a servant in some far country. And then he heads back home. 
And verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Notice the father's hard posture towards the younger son. It is not as though the father is upset to see the younger son, ready to punish him for his squandering of the inheritance. This is the hard posture of the father towards the, the son who went and squandered all the family's inheritance on lavish living, and he receives him and runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. He welcomes him in. Here's Jesus talking about what he does towards the sinners and the tax collectors, those who are far off from God, admitting their destitution. He embraces them, warmly welcomes them. He even kisses them as a, as a greeting to, to welcome them in. This would be to answer the question, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? His point is, I'm embracing them wholeheartedly because of how aware they are of their need. Verse 21, and the son said to him, as he has planned to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What does the father say? The father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it in front of him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father receives the apostate son back with warm arms and covers him with garments fitting of the son, gives him his ring, puts shoes on him, and provides a meal for him, meeting every need that the son had and more. Covering him warmly, completely dismissing the idea of him being a servant, and simply acknowledging that he is welcomed warmly back into the father's house. Now this is immensely unexpected. Because the way that the Pharisees think about God is that he is a shrewd judge, not at all as though he's a loving father. But the whole Old Testament actually tells us about Hosea and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where God is described as this God who longs to bring his people back to himself, to once again be joined with them, to once again receive them back, despite all of their apostasy. In fact, Jeremiah, when he's sent out to the people of God to preach to them and for them to reject him consistently, he is always told to preach this news of condemnation and warning so that they might come to their senses and repent. God has never given up on his people. And here this parable illustrates that. So you have Pharisees and scribes accusing Jesus of being unlike the father. He's associating with the unclean. He's not really keeping up appearances as he ought to. And Jesus is actually kind of saying this is exactly what the father does. He's this kind of a father where he actually welcomes in those who are most undeserving and embraces them and rejoices over them. As the first two parables and then this third emphasizes the rejoicing and the celebration over the lost one being found and received. And then we can't stop there because the real emphasis of the parable, the real thrust of what's being said is found in verse 25 through 32, where we are introduced to a new note that clarifies what the previous two parables left open-ended. 
And we're introduced to the older son. Verse 25, now the older son was in the field and he came and drew to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, the servants, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, this is the younger son, was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. The younger son is received back warmly by the father and by all the servants who do the bidding of the father, but he is not received warmly by the eldest son. The eldest son being the heir of the inheritance, the one who would have most of the estate owed to him. The older son being the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones who are most poised to receive the blessings of God, most uh, obedient to him in terms of action and activity, most studious of his scriptures, most observant in keeping his law, and most frustrated over the free grace of salvation, which was offered to the youngest son. So the father, though, what was now being clarified is that the father actually doesn't just cut off the, the, the older son. He doesn't reject him and throw him into gloomy darkness. Notice what the father does to the older son that is very similar to what happens with the lost sheep and the lost coin. The father came out like he did with the younger son and he entreated him. Or some translations might say he pleaded earnestly with him or ongoingly with him. The father is pursuing the older son in the same way that the shepherd pursued the lost sheep and the old woman pursued the lost coin. He is pursuing the older son, not the younger son. Because in this interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees, the sinners and the tax collectors already know their lostness and they're coming to Jesus freely. Now Jesus is essentially through this parable pleading with the Pharisees and the scribes to wake up to their own need and to come and be welcomed in and to celebrate. So his father entreats him. But verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you gave me, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The language that the older son uses is language of slavery. He doesn't view himself in relationship to his father as one who is a son who is obedient. You might miss it there in the text when the son starts speaking, he says, look, these many years I have slaved for you. He's not using the term often used of service. He's using the term used of slave. I have labored for you as a, as a slave. As a, Heath considers himself to be a hireling, one who can merit and earn before the father. He doesn't have a familial relationship with the father. He thinks of himself as a hired hand who is more obedient than the other hired hands, but nevertheless a slave before the father. And he announces his credentials. I have never disobeyed your command. Verse 30, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older son clearly frustrated over the grace that the younger son has received and the celebration which is now his, perfectly emulating the Pharisees and the tax collector, or the Pharisees and the scribes, frustrated over Jesus interacting with the tax collectors and sinners and welcoming them in warmly. 
And then the father responds, verse 31, and said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was, filling, filling, or it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's the same thing he says to the servants. Now he says to the older son. And notice the interplay of the father and the older son, where the, the, father, or sorry, the older son says to the father first, this son of yours... He's distancing himself from the younger brother. And when the father speaks to him, he says, for this, your brother was dead. He's trying to reestablish this connection. You're just like him. You are in the same position. You are lost. I plead with you to come back. He's establishing a closer connection than the older brother wants to have with the younger brother. He's essentially saying, it would be fitting for you to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. What's amazing about this parable, and really these three parables, that the truth that they're illustrating, is that, as I mentioned earlier, there's not one lost son, or one lost sheep, or one lost coin. The point is, there's one sheep who is obviously lost. There's one coin which is obviously lost. There's one son which has obviously wandered to a far land. But it becomes clear in the third parable that by the end when the father and the older son are interacting, there's actually not one lost son, but there's two sons who were lost. One son who was lost in a distant land and one son whose heart posture was so removed from the father that he is also lost to a distant land. One aware of his own need and coming back. One insistent on his own righteousness and unrepentant in his state. But here's what's amazing about the father in this parable. Not only does he pursue the younger son to, warm, to welcome him back warmly, as the parable concludes, the question is still open arms waiting for the older son to repent. As one commentator of the text, Dale Ralph Davis observes, the good news of the gospel in this parable is not only that Jesus welcomes sinners and tax collectors to himself, but he also, with open arms, even welcomes Pharisees to himself. The point of the text is not to be so scandalous that all of the dominant emphasis goes to the younger son or to the sinners and the tax collectors. In fact, most of Luke's gospel has already established precedent that this is kind of exactly how Jesus behaves. He interacts with lepers. He hangs out with adulterous women. He redeems sinners from, the, from their sin. He welcomes them warmly unto himself. This is a precedent that Luke has already established. What has not yet been clearly established and it is being built in the last several chapters and will continue to be built is Jesus' pursuit also of the other lost children in the house of Israel, namely those who insist that they are not in need of him. He pursues faithfully tax collectors and sinners, uh, but also he pursues faithfully the legalists and the scribes. Now, this is good news because this is Jesus' heart posture to all who are lost. The lost, we're told, come in every shape and size of all stripes, of all creeds and confessions. They are the lost who are obviously lost. We might say uh, in the church, we use language like, oh, they had a 
Saul to Paul kind of conversion. They're the ones who were uh, prisoners. They had a whole list of sins that could have been exploited out in a magazine somewhere. They're not the kind of person you would hire at a job. They're not the kind of person who's savory to have over at the house for dinner. There's those obviously lost people there. But the point of the text is they're actually not the only category of lost people. There's a whole other category of lost people, uh, which is those who are active in the church, those who are theologically astute and well-studied, those who know the ins and outs of their Bible, who can quote about the grace of God and his mercy and can cite long treatises on the, how all of you know, God's benevolence towards his people fits together. They have the law memorized. They can apply the law. And yet, all of that never stirs their heart to affection and love. It actually leaves them convinced that they have completed the law on their own. We've already counted this emphasis once before in the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you remember at that time, I argued there's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is there are no Good Samaritans. The point is there's no one who behaves that way because everyone fails to serve God rightly and justly and do what is required. So you're fooling yourself, religious leader, if you think you can obey all that the law requires to love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here again, chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, he visits the same point once more. You're fooling yourself, Pharisees and scribes, if you think you are in the household of God and that God is wrong for going and pursuing the lost. You're actually just as far out as they are. You might be more dressed up. Uh, You might be more obedient. You might be able to quote more of the Torah. But you're just as lost as the sinners and the tax collectors. You could actually argue that they're more lost than the sinners and the tax collectors because the sinners and the tax collectors have one thing going for them that the Pharisees don't at this time, which is conviction over their sin. Now, in the church today, this becomes very practical because we think about God's lavish gift of grace as something that he bestows on the lost out in the world who have sins that we can point to and look at and say, see, they're a sinner, or look at how wicked they are. They need Christ. True. All of that's true. And the church ought to stand on that truth because something the world is trying to do currently is deceive people into saying that they have no sin, that God is not angry, God has no standard. In fact, there is no God. And so the church ought to keep the witness going that there is sin, there is a standard of righteousness, and God freely welcomes sinners into his arms. But there's also this other group of people that the church largely has no idea what to do with, and that is those in the church, faithful and active, obedient, studious, who are amassing for themselves a kind of righteousness which is testifying broadly to God and to their own heart that they think that they don't actually need the sacrifice of Christ. This obviously would most likely apply to those who grew up in the church their whole life, were obedient to all that their parents told them, went to good colleges, pursued good careers, kept in good social circles. And their sin is less than obvious to the watching world. The sin is not so apparent that you could point to it and say, there it is. 
But the sin comes out when, well, when the other sinners are welcomed in warmly. And then those who are self-righteous begin to say things like, well, that person certainly doesn't deserve this kind of welcome. Or, you know, God can save these kinds of people, but they have to really clean themselves up first before they can be found in God. Or, when you observe God's working in someone's heart, who you have written off as being unfit for the kingdom, and yet God is pleased to work and to move and to save that person. And the sin of self-righteousness is revealed when you look at those people and their brokenness, and you keep them at arm's length from yourself and your own obedience to the Father. This is the very thing Paul has to come to in the New Testament where he writes that despite all of his awards, besides all of his merits, besides all of his obedience and faithfulness, uh, he is, matter of fact, the top sinner that exists in the world. If you have come to that assessment of your own sin, seeing it as the most ugly sin of anyone around, then you're in a good place. Remember, the turning point for the younger son is when he's aware of his own need, and thus he starts to long for what the father can offer him. The turning point in the parable doesn't happen ever for the older brother. He never becomes admittant of his own need. He never reflects about his condition and his status where he is a broken relationship with the father, and he never concludes, I should turn and rejoice and repent of my brokenness. He never does that because he never gets to the place of need. If you have ever been to the place of need before the Father, you know exactly how warm the embrace is when he offers redemption and free grace in Christ. If you've ever looked at your own sin, self-assessed, and said, I am sure in need of someone else's righteousness besides my own because if I am judged by my own works, I am dead on arrival. Then you've come to an appropriate place where you can receive the grace of God, which he offers warmly to those who are in need. But be warned that God does not only have the lost who are self-aware, he also has the lost who are blind guides and unaware. And this would be more descriptive if you wake up in the morning you go before the Lord in prayer and you search your own heart and you say, I have no sin to confess. I have nothing to bring before the Father and ask for grace for because I'm doing pretty good. I don't feel the need to pray and ask God for help because I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. That, if that is a more accurate description of your relationship to the Father, the older son is actually the more close illustration in the parable, being insistent on his own lack of need for the Father, being insistent on his own righteousness before the Father. And this in the church is the most pervasive kind of sin because it can just creep up in us when we're not thinking about it. It's the kind of thing that can go unchecked for years and all of a sudden rear its ugly head it's the kind of thing that builds itself out over time, first through lack of confession, and then through prayerlessness, and then through a lack of needing to read scripture, 
and ultimately boils over into a dislike and a distaste for God and his grace that he offers freely. A kind of hardness towards the gospel which says, yes, yes, old news. Give me something else. But for the sinner who's aware of their need for the gospel, the gospel remains the sum total of all of what is found living and abiding in Christ. You can think about this as the older son's hard-heartedness towards the rejoicing and the feasting as analogous to one who could hear the gospel proclaimed, call themselves a believer, and not be moved by the joy and the hope and the love which is found in Christ in those words. And if you're honest with yourself, if you've been in the church for a lot longer or you've been in the church for a while, that probably has described you at one point or another. You hear about God's truth, you hear about his goodness, but it doesn't stir within you any kind of worship, any kind of rejoicing, any kind of adoration and glory and awareness of your own once again need to confess your sin before God and beg him for forgiveness. If you've been in the church for a while, it's more likely that you'll reflect like the younger son does and say, I'm serving faithfully. I don't really understand the need for all this celebration and joy over the sinner. Why don't you give me my due so I can go celebrate with who I want to celebrate with? This is often how we approach God when we've been in the family for a long time. <laughs> As close to home and yet far removed from the heart of the Father. And this is where the parable dominantly emphasizes its points because it's, it, it's the question it leaves open-ended. There's no resolution for the older brother. There's simply the open invitation from the father to once again come and celebrate. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate or more appropriately, it was necessary that we ought to celebrate. It was a must. To celebrate the redemption of the son is a must. To rejoice in God for his gospel is a must. If that accurately describes the way you respond to Christ and his grace, that's the fitting response. The angels respond that way. Glory, glory, glory to God, rejoicing for his mar marvelous salvation. And yet it is often those who are adopted sons who look at the grace of God and who are not stirred to worship because of it. Who are not moved in their heart to once again confess sin. And the invitation is, it is necessary to celebrate and be glad because the one who is dead is now alive. The one who is lost is now found. And there's joy in this because, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus' mission towards the lost is effectual. He accomplishes the salvation of those who are lost. Step one to being lost is awareness of your own lostness. In John's Gospel, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night and asks him questions uh, about theology and how all this Messiah stuff works. And at that interaction, he is left unaffected by his interaction with Jesus, seemingly un unmoved. We encounter him a little bit later in John's Gospel, more sympathetic towards Jesus, almost interceding in between Jesus and the Pharisees to plead the case for the Pharisees to act justly if they're going to try to prosecute Jesus. 
And we find him finally in John's Gospel, chapter 19, as, as the very man who goes to Jesus and anoints him with oil when he is crucified. He moved from self-righteous to questioning his own righteousness to identifying with Christ in his death. In John's Gospel, the point is that the Pharisees actually, there's hope for them. It just takes some time. In Luke's Gospel, it's a little bit more somber. Because what we've seen in the last several parables, the last several chapters, is it seems to be the case that the Pharisees and the scribes are simply antagonists towards the mission of Christ. And while there are Pharisees and scribes in Luke's gospel, there are Pharisees and scribes today, the ones who are found within the church. Don't think just because you go to church or attend faithfully or read your Bible regularly that that means you are perfectly righteous before the Father. Because whenever your own righteousness begins to answer the question, how are you redeemed? And you begin to answer, because I study faithfully, or because I pray regularly, or because I fill in the blank. That's the wrong way to begin answering the question. The correct answer always is the way that the younger son can only answer the question. It is not my righteousness, it is the clothing of the father's robe over me and the putting on of the sandals and the putting on of the ring. It is his signifying grace over me which cleans me and washes me and covers me. That's the appropriate response always, to recognize the need for a covering. So I would encourage you, Christian, to never grow weary of your repentance. The grace that you needed when you were first aware of your sin is not lacking and it's not done. You will need that grace daily from now until the moment that God calls you to glory. Because so it is in this world under the curse of sin that we need to constantly be before Christ confessing our sins and our need. And if you conclude to yourself, well, I have no sin to confess, that's an immediate place to stop and catch yourself and to pray and ask Jesus to reveal to you how desperately in need that you are. In the West, with how autonomous we are, with how individualistic we are, we tend to think that maturity means independence and a lack of need. But it is the case in Scripture where maturity for Israel and maturity for the younger son and maturity for this older son would it be to confess the actual need that they have dependent upon the Father? Israel gets into trouble when they say things like, I have no need for God, I can go out on my own. I'm not as dependent as I currently appear to be. And so Christians go wrong today as well. Because we insist that we have no need. That is the beginning of the downfall, away from the grace of God. But the hope is, that when you become aware of your need once again, that Christ and the Father, through the movement of the Spirit, welcome you once again with open arms, to cover you with righteousness, to assure you of pardon, to forgive you of all that you have committed, and to once again welcome you as a son of the King. This is the hope, not only for the sinner, uh, but also for the religiously righteous. It is the hope not only for those who are out in the world, 
but also for those who are in the church. It is God's free grace, which is not our starting point in faith, but it is the, the life and breath and backbone of faith. It is the sum and total of all of our hope. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we are an insufficient creature. We fall so short of your grace, so short of your mercy. Lord, it would be unfitting for us to insist that we are deserving of the inheritance, deserving of our position as sons. It would be unfitting of us to insist upon all those things. And yet you are gracious to lavish upon us mercy and forgiveness and a warm embrace and a covering to redeem us. Lord, I pray for your church, for us, your body, that you would convict us of sin. Bring us to an awareness of our sin before you. The sins which are obvious to others, of course, but also the sins which can lurk very much beneath the surface. Lord, would you give us grace to stir our hearts to confession, to stir ourselves to an awareness of need, and ultimately, Lord, to stir ourselves to worship of you for providing all that is needed in Christ Jesus. We thank you and we praise you for this. Amen.